Fantastic. Good to see everybody on this Friday. And uh, it is Friday, and next week's the greatest week of the year. Thanksgiving week is the best of the best. Now, listen, I found out yesterday, as in every college, there's going to be uh, students that um, live somewhere in the world um, or somewhere in the country. They can't get to places. Be very sensitive, those of you, of you that live in the region, um, to bring people home for Thanksgiving. I remember when I was in college my freshman year, I brought home three people uh, to Thanksgiving. I just kind of told my mom as we showed up at the house uh, that there was going to be three other people from my college. But if you have somebody in your a roommate or someone in your dorm that you find out has nowhere to go on Thanksgiving just because logistically they're here in the Twin Cities, um, think about a way to get them connected to somebody on Thanksgiving. I just don't want anybody to be by themselves on, on Thanksgiving. So um, who has nowhere to go on Thanksgiving? Put your hand up. Like, like, you're not, you're not sad, right? You just have no place to go. And right now, as of right now, today, is everybody got some place to go eat uh, and sleep and watch football and all that fun stuff? Okay, okay. I'm assuming we got it covered then. Good stuff, good stuff. Hey, before I, we turn our heart to God's word this morning, I just want to introduce two very, very uh, um, special people here. Uh, Paul and Don Damon are here. Don was uh, my top assistant pastor for uh, several years when I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, uh, Pastor Don is just a great preacher, a leader, and uh, her husband, Paul, is a great leader uh, in the area of finance and really missional living uh, for people uh, that are our age and up. Um, but they're just a power couple, and they're here from Grand Rapids. They are helping our school, blessing our school, and we're so excited to be connected. I just want my friends to stand up real quick. This is Paul and Don Damon right there from Grand Rapids. <laughs> Wonderful folks. Wonderful folks. So we just found out last night that the girls, uh, now there's, so we have, we have six grandkids right now, okay, we have four boys and two girls as of right now, okay? We have three more on the way. We have three pregnant women in our family, right? <laughs> Mrs. H is not one of them, though that would be very cool if you were pregnant. I would be all for that. Wouldn't that be cool to see Mrs. H have a baby? <laughs> I'm, losing, I'm losing fans as we go there. But we have six kids. We have four boys and two girls. So right now, uh, Spencer and Brianna are pregnant, which with a boy, that puts five and two. But then Jocelyn's pregnant with a girl. It's five, three. And now Kramer and Becky are pregnant with a girl. So we're adding a boy and two girls to our current uh, crew of that. So we're going to have nine kids by, by, um, by June, right? It's great. So we lost, yeah, go girls. It's a, it's a great comeback of the girls right there. So, but wow, you guys, I just can't tell you, uh, walking in here again, singing together, um, like this, um, you, when I say you, the student body, you really are going a place, going into a place as a university that it's rare air. Uh, I, always, I deeply believe we have the most distinguishable uh, 
um, university in the United States for a school like ours um, that is really the envy of so many people. I know you're grinding away in your classes and live here every day and may not feel the broader scope of what NCU means to the country and to other schools. Uh, everybody that visits here says they've never been in a place like this in their life. And it's day to day for us, so the novelty's all worn off. And unless you're away from it and then come back into it, or you go contrast it to some other place, you don't really realize what you are in the midst of. But even today, on just another Friday, um, the place that you are pursuing in the presence of the Lord and the seriousness of your pursuit for the Lord and what's happening in the giftedness, the anointing, all of it, it's just rare air. I can't explain it. And uh, this is a very special moment in the history of our university and in the history of your life and my life together. And so um, I just want to enjoy it. I want to steward it. And I just want as many young people that are supposed to be here, get here. And, but you are doing a tremendous job. I, I would put this year's class as a whole, as a student campus community, as, as great as it's ever been at North Central University. And the history of this place is pretty phenomenal. But I can't imagine this chapel being more, have a, have a depth to it, um, not just a, a hype to it. Um, that I'm feeling and sensing. So I just, it makes me emotional and it makes me motivated like never before to see all that God has in store for this place. And uh, I'm trusting and believing in the return of Christ to this earth, uh, the rapture of the church, all of it uh, in my lifetime. But if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, if the Lord still has more to do, we want to get this university ready for the next 100 years. Um, somebody with $100 in their checkbook, North Central University had $100 in the checkbook in 1933, and Miller Hall came available, and the cost of Miller Hall was $500,000 in 1933. If you understand U.S. history, the throes of the Great Depression was still just, the average household income in America was $1,300 a year you know, was what people made for the whole year, 1300 bucks. And the president and a small group of people um, uh, believed, pursued, and acquired Asbury Hospital across the street, Miller Hall, um, at the lowest point of the U.S. economy, the most hopeless point, where nobody would take that kind of broad leap for the kingdom. This whole university is built on miracles. And so that DNA is in you. When you come and study at this place, you, you take that DNA, that deposit of that happens, and it gets inside of you to live a life of, of bold faith um, for the rest of your life and to see God use you in every field imaginable. As we are those Daniel 5.12 leaders, where he says, let's call Daniel. Perhaps he can tell us what that severed hand writing on the wall Everybody thought they were drunk and saw this handwriting on the wall, just a hand, nothing else. Writes a message, and it was not in any known human language. It wasn't a language from around the world that they had to bring in a linguistics expert to. It was, it was literally some language that God was, it was like literally tongues, wrote in tongues on the wall, uh, speaking in tongues. Probably was the first speaking in tongues in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I never preached that, but it, this could have been it. And so what happened is they said, let's, let's find Daniel. He has a keen mind. 
an exceptional ability. What was he exceptional at? Three things. He could interpret dreams. He could explain riddles. And he could solve difficult problems. And that's exactly what we expect God to do in your life. You are training to be at the very top of your field. We want the people that graduate from our university to be at the top of their field. Whether it's pastoral, missional, missions, music writing, worship, business, all of it, education, sports management. God is going to use you in writing at the top of your field in this country, okay? Um, and I just really believe that that generation is sitting right here. Keen mind, exceptional ability that you can interpret dreams. You have an ability to see the future, forecast the future in a way that the smartest person from Harvard can't do it. But God has given you something that the Babylonians don't possess. You hear me? And guess what? Harvard will be asking you for help. Most brightest, accomplished people in the world will be asking for your help because you can interpret a dream, you can explain a riddle, and you can solve a difficult problem that the smartest people in Babylon could not figure out. I don't know why you're here, but that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here, is to be a part of that, to be in the room with that, and to help participate in creating the conditions for people to get out of this place, to be at the top of their field, in no matter what area God places you in. And uh, you are doing your part. You are doing your part. Uh, the atmosphere in this place is just, just phenomenal. Okay, we're gonna be, in just a moment, we're gonna be in Isaiah 61. I just wanna take two minutes. Uh, I'm gonna slip this in. We're gonna do two things today. I'm gonna give you a mini two-minute presentation on something I've developed in my PhD program, because I'm in school too. And I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I got a paper I gotta get done. It's just bearing down on me as I sit here like I need to finish preaching and, and pray and then go write. Um, but um, I, I put this together. This is really 25 years in the making in my life. And everybody's trying to simplify or bring into a framework really the, their life message. And I would say I started actually teaching this framework 20-something years ago in a sermon based on 2 Timothy chapter 4, 11 through 13. And I've shared this with uh, the school before last year about Paul saying, when you come, bring John Mark. Um, uh, uh, Tychukos, I've sent to Ephesus, or Tychicus, depending on how you were taught to pronounce it. Um, I sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring my coat, bring the books, and especially the parchments. Those five areas or five dashboards are, are, are my dashboard. Those five areas are my dashboard for leadership. And I've been developing these things, and this is a presentation um, that I've been putting together for um, a secular group of people on what I call the five critical themes of leadership. And I just want to give it to you. It, it, this is going to take two minutes uh, to give this, but here we go. I want to give this to you. So it's the five, boom, right there, five critical themes of leadership. Number one is buoyancy. Buoyancy is my new favorite word. The word resiliency, all of that, it's a good word. I am now hooked on buoyancy. And I've just been meditating, thinking a lot about this idea of the ability to uh, do the following. Just two traits of buoyancy. Number one, demonstrate psychological stability during periods of delay or setback. The ability to recalibrate um, and to restore yourself psychologically or emotionally during delay 
where things are uncertain and you can't define it and you are frustrated because it's not arriving at the speed of me. And we lose our way, we lose our equilibrium during times of delay. It's gonna be a temptation your whole life is to understand why or understand the timing of things and the timing of God. So buoyancy is the ability, it's someone who demonstrates psychological stability or emotional stability during periods of delay or setback. It is the first of five critical themes of leadership for the rest of your life. The other part is the ability to, someone who cherishes restoration. It's not about discovering new things that lights up my heart. It's about rediscovering lost things. So you can build as many new friendships as you want, but if you don't have the ability to restore a broken relationship, not just form a new one, you're not going to reach your full potentiality for the kingdom. So buoyancy, to me, is about cherishing restoration in your life, the ability to restore something that's broken or lost. Here's my second favorite word. Here we go. Mutuality. We talk a lot about diversity. We talk about unity. This is, this is how I kind of tease and coalesce the ideas of diversity and unity into this idea of mutuality. <coughs> what is mutuality? Sees others as capable and necessary. So someone, when I live in mutuality with you, I see you as not only capable, but I see you as necessary to my life and to this world. So people that are different than you, people that have a historical track record of power differential in your life, no matter what construct you come from, we have people in our life or systems in our life that have hurt us. And it's hard to see someone who represents that system as necessary and capable. But a critical theme of your leadership and my leadership is the ability to transcend what I've been assigned in this life, socially assigned, and living within those parameters, breaking free in Christ, and being able to see people that don't fit or people that do fit the profile of somebody that I should fear. Seeing that person is capable and necessary to my life. The greatest leaders in the world have this capacity. Its mutuality is also encourages peers and protégés to conquer new spaces of leadership. Mutuality is about my ability to encourage my peers and my protégés. My peers, people just like me, the same life trajectory as me, wanting them, encouraging them to conquer new spaces of leadership without me blocking their influence. Without me going ho-hum, folded arms, kind of project disappointment that it's you instead of me. Being able to encourage your protégés, people that you're mentoring, people that you are helping in this life, releasing them to conquer new spaces of leadership, friends. To me, that's what mutuality is all about. It's one of the critical themes of leadership. Here's my third critical theme, durability. Um, understands the imperative of physical and emotional well-being. And somebody, when it comes to durability, prepares for the imminent leadership conditions of winter and wilderness. Every one of us are gonna go through times of status quo. We would call them winter or wilderness. It's times where there's no growth. All the growth's on the inside. In the winter, it looks like everything in the Midwest is dead. 
For months, it looks like it's dead. Everything's happening on the inside. One of the great critical themes of leadership is your response to winter. Because nobody in this room will live in a constant state of spring. There has to be times where everything on the outside appears motionless, like there's no fruit, because everything at this season is on the inside of my life. You may be in that winter right now, or a wilderness where the Lord takes you on a pathway through that feels very um, individualized, very isolated, very alone, without landmarks, and you get disorientated in winter and wilderness, but you prepare for that. You're prepared, and it doesn't catch you off guard. And you understand that I must take care of my physical body and my emotional body. Well-being, over time, we could talk at length, is, one of the, is the third critical theme of leadership. Here's another one, aspiration. It's the fourth critical theme of leadership, according to me, I guess. <laughs> um, aspiration. This is critical, you guys. Lives motivated in the space between who they are currently and the potential for who they can become. Now, this is totally different than me comparing myself to you. I don't live in a space of comparing myself to another person. I live in a space between who I am currently and the potential for, what, for who I can become. That's where aspiration operates. That's why we learn. That's why we continue to uh, press into new and, uh, places that, we, that stretch us or puts us on the peripheral of what we're really good at so that we can learn new methods and new things. Aspiration sees a binding connection between maturity and influence. So I'm aspiring to grow because I'm ex ex uh, I am aspiring to make a difference. You connect maturity with influence. You don't connect influence with opportunity. You connect it with maturity. Um, okay, here's the last one because I want to get to Genesis 12. Vitality. Vitality is, I enjoy, I, enjoys a flourishing inner life. What do I mean by that? I share this with non-Christians. Here's how I frame it in the marketplace when I talk about vitality. Enjoys a flourishing inner life, grounded and energized by God's plan for their existence on this earth. Now, I would probably teach that a, a little bit different inside a church. About what I, I've shared this with different people, not, not in the specific outline I just showed you, because I've been, I've been refining this for 20 years. But when I've shared this in settings outside the church, nobody gets up and leaves when I talk about this. Nobody gets up and leaves. And I, I leave it last uh, for a reason. Because by the time I have gotten to vitality, I have poured meaning and value into these people's lives. I'm helping them untangle and unpack the complexity of their own leadership experience. And now they're listening to me and they wanna, they wanna know what's your source of your life. And so, um, anyway, those are the five things. Okay, here we go. Genesis chapter 12. Let's do this. I'm sorry, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. We're going to be in Matthew 12, Isaiah 61. Matthew 12, Isaiah 61. I got a paper due. Okay, I've been up late. Here we go. <laughs> Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me, chosen me. He has literally perfumed me, fragranced me, uh, appointed me, put a substance on me, an oil to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. 
He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. And I will tell you this, the reason why North Central is what it is is because there's singing. Our university is filled with singing. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. You know, the, the emptiness of the social justice movement, people trying to find justice, but there's no singing in the social justice movement. The Bible says when Paul and Silas were in the prison, they were about to die. They prayed, they praised, and they began to sing. They began, we could do a whole study on the therapeutic um, effect of singing. When I see people who won't sing, they are a fatigued, confused, broken person who's withholding what God gave them, the ability to sing. Our dear, amazing person here, you, you are amazing. Have you watched worship? If we don't have, bar none, the coolest worship experience in America in a college, and then I look over, and my sister is just doing it like I can't believe it. She's not just doing it like he's her words. The song is, it's, I can't even describe it. I go, you could build the whole university on that right there. That passion, that reality, that love, that distinction. It's incredible. If I marched the presidents of Harvard and MIT into this room and just said, I want you to sit there and watch that. That is our university right there. They would be going, how do you do this? We got, you know, $300 billion in our endowment. We can't, we can't buy that. Because money can't buy that. Okay? I just wanted you to know that. I've been wanting to tell you that. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Festive praise. We are a university that sings. Here we go. Here we go. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. What purpose? What meaning in life? They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. Something that is not just once a generation, but once in many generations could be happening at our school. Not just, hey, once you're like a once a generation. No, no, no. It could be a once in many generations that God uses us and positions us. Now watch this. Here we go to Matthew 12. But Jesus knew what they were planning. He had just healed on the Sabbath. They wanted a king, but they wanted a judicious king, a boisterous king, a king like they had seen uh, Caesar or a king uh, of times past. They wanted a ruler, and Jesus was a king, but he wasn't a king in their making. But Jesus knew that they were planning, what they were planning. He had healed on the Sabbath, and they wanted to make him king. So he left that area. Many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. He was tapping the brakes on the revelation of who he was to this earth. There was more he had to do with some type of moderated uh, um, um, lack of celebrity uh, or obscurity. And so he warned them not to reveal. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. And now this is from Isaiah 42. Found in Matthew 12, it says, Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit on him or anoint him. I will smear him 
with a substance from heaven that separates, identifies, and anoints him, I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout. He's not going to be like an earthly commander. He will be a king, but not a king of your making. Or he will not raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle or a smoking flask. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious and his name will be the hope of all the world. I want to talk for just a minute about this verse on why Jesus is the perfect servant that was marked not by fury, but by gentleness. Now watch this. The Bible says in Isaiah 61 that Jesus, or this coming one, would be close to the brokenhearted. And that's why I think in this anxiety-riddled generation, where those are contemplating whether life is even worth living, we are poised for a Jesus movement right now in this generation like never before. Because people are feeling brokenhearted. And the Bible says that this coming servant is closest to the brokenhearted. In Isaiah 42, in Matthew 12, it is described by the metaphors of the uh, uh, smoldering wick and the bruised reed. That he will not snuff out a smoldering wick, which was a small wick in a candle that had seen its day. It was burnt to the bottom. And the wick was gone. That was the flask. It was simply emitting smoke, not fire. And the Bible says that Jesus, now in Matthew 12, is the one identified from Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61. It is Jesus. He will not snuff out and move on from that smoldering wick. He will not snuff out the unsteady He will not take that final act of exasperation and futility. He will not move on to something better than you. And then he provides a special oil to reignite and burn strong. That which has entirely been consumed. Matthew 12, when he healed on the Sabbath, it became literally this conversation between the antagonist of religion and the answer of heaven or the kingdom Jesus. Jesus being the perfect servant, Matthew 12, 20, he's gentle. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. This idea of the bruised reed or the marsh reed comes from Isaiah 42. These marsh reeds were everywhere. They were common. They were fragile. They were worthless as a commodity. They may be the equivalent to a toothpick. A marsh reed was as plenteous as a toothpick. And so they would use these reeds that had grown in the marshland for a flute, a measuring rod, a pen, a number of things. They had many uses, but once the reed was broken, there was no second life to a reed. When I was a kid, if you went to a cheap drive-in, the straws were made of paper. Remember paper straws? And you put it into your Dr. Pepper, and if you talked for too long and forgot about your straw, it got soggy. And then you went to suck it, and it closed. Once your paper straw closed on you, you could never reopen it. 
eh, rip up and I need a new straw. Once that sucker was bruised, once it was broken, it was discarded. That is the idea. Isaiah 61 says, there is one who is close to the brokenhearted. The brokenhearted are characterized like a marsh reed that has been bruised, that is discarded, thrown away. It was quickly thrown away and always replaced with a better version. The Bible then says in Matthew 12, it connects Jesus's ministry to that person. The reed is a person. It's humanity. A bruised and broken reed represents the stages of weakness and helplessness, of futurelessness that hit human beings. Something the world would quickly toss away and no longer pay any attention to. The smoldering wick was like the bruised reed. It had been used up and it was only emitting smoke. And the Bible says that this one Jesus identified in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 42 as the one who would not wipe out the wick, quench it, do that final act of disposal, even though the smoldering wick is annoying. Not only did it not give light, it produced smoke. The gifts were all used up. It no longer has any social contribution. There's no light, there's only smoke. And we have a society filled with folks who believe that about themselves, that they no longer are light, they're simply smoke. And the Bible says that, that human beings walk up to that person, you're done, you're used up. And here's the dilemma. There's no age connected to this process. We have stories all over scripture of the young feeling as though they're the smoldering wick, the bruised reed. Now we have to wrap up here. We'll do this in a two-parter. Naturally, you would snuff it out and be done with it if the wick was smoking. The team can kind of come back up here. Man, you guys killed it today. That just worship. I don't know if you're supposed to say worship people killed it, but I don't know what, how to say it. What you killed was my apathy. Killed the devil. Killed my distractions. So a little flax was cheap, so you replaced it. A marsh reed was cheap, like a toothpick, chuck it away. You, there was a bazillion marsh reeds and an endless supply of wicks. And you can think, well, there's a bazillion human beings. I'm replaceable. I'm just a commodity. I'm just a toothpick. Life just moves on for me. And that is true. That's how human beings do it. The kingdom is in based entirely on a different premise. He's actually closest to the wick that's used up and to the reed that's bruised. He moves near that. That is Jesus' best friend. His BFF is that. If he walked in this building today, he would intuitively know who the most broken and bruised is legitimately, and he would sit next to that person. That's who Jesus is, according to the scripture. Not maybe who your neighbor is, your parents were, your hometown is, your pastor was, but that's who Jesus is. So the smoldering wick, most people would discard it, just like a broken reed, but not Jesus. He's gentle with those who are tender and fragile and those who feel great futility. 
human beings would step on, that's the logic of the human being, to step on the reed or the wick, and there's no other step that humans have. But with Jesus and with God, there's always another step that he takes. He takes the bruised reed, the smoldering wick, the shattered, the futureless. He miraculously chooses that, uses that, redeems that sense of being. He restores and then enlightens that individual who's tired, broken, can't see it in themselves. And if you really want to walk in the ministry of Jesus, which I do, I want to walk in the ministry of Jesus. This is his ministry. That he's closest to the broken, not the powerful, not the well-oiled, not the highly gifted. He had no trouble taking those people to their full destiny, but he was closest to the brokenhearted. If our campus could become consumed with the ministry of Jesus like this, we would see people not feeling as though their future is over because of the bruises and the smoke. They wouldn't take their cues based on how other secular human beings or immature churchgoers have related to them. But here's the key. We don't live in this constant state of, I'm just the smoke and I'm the reed that can't do anything in this life. I need more attention. No. We need healing. We need wholeness so that we then can give that healing and wholeness away as fast as possible to the world around us. This is our ministry, not just the ministry, the ministry we receive. It's the ministry that we must become embodied by to our world that is broken today. Well, We'll stand right here. We've we'll, got a lot more to cover in this teaching, but I just want us to stand up today. And if we can, do we have some singers? Oh, yeah, we got singers. Let's come up and let's just begin to sing that Holy Spirit song. Lord, I pray this beautiful Friday, Lord. First of all, be with our soccer team, Lord. Lord, would you let them win the national championship tomorrow? I'm sure Kentucky Christian is a great college. <laughs> but it's not NCU, Lord. <laughs> Lord, be with our basketball team as they drive to Wisconsin. Always watch over our teams when they travel. Protect our teams, Lord. Protect our worship teams when they're out. Protect all the interns and ministry teams and preachers and worship leaders and all the tutors that are working and all of those that are helping teach music to inner city kids, God. Whether we're catching a bus, walking through the skyways, crossing the street, Lord, dodging cars. Protect our family here, Lord, from all harm. As people go home across the world, Lord, for Thanksgiving, protect every student, every man and woman, God, every brother and sister, our staff and our faculty, our leaders, Lord, our student body, protect every life, Lord, 
from harm, Lord, over these holidays and beyond. I pray for protection. And Jesus, we just ask right now, can we just lift our hands to the Lord as we bring our Friday teaching time to a close, as we head into a time of prayer and fasting for those who can stay and pray. Lord, thank you that you did not discard me. You did not snuff out me when I was only producing smoke instead of light. That you have provided a very special oil that has reignited my life with purpose. I burn now, Lord, with kingdom oil, Lord. Whatever was poured on you, Lord, whatever rubbed against Moses when the goodness of God pressed against him and left the residue of heaven, the deposit of heaven. His face radiated, Lord. Lord, I want you to brush by me. Anoint me. Give me that oil. And Father, I pray today that I would not move away from the brokenhearted. I would move toward the brokenhearted, Lord. Because that's what you have done, Jesus. Relentlessly, Lord. Help us to be a university that not a single bruised reed is discarded, but they're brought back to life. Not a single smoking flask or wick is snuffed out at North Central, but they're brought back to that burn and that flame, God. Touch our teachers who serve and labor here, Lord, pouring their guts out, our staff, pours their guts out. Our students who are pouring their guts out. All for your glory, Lord. All for your kingdom. Just bless this house, Lord. I'd like to invite any the faculty that's here to come across. I'd like to invite us back to this altar for a time. We're going to enter into some time of prayer and fasting. Those that could stay. We just want to start singing the Holy Spirit song. Even that first song we did, maybe reverse it. Do that one too before you guys are done as a group. That It was so dynamic today. Hallelujah. Staff, if you guys would come in, the faculty or staff that's here across the front. If you need prayer, if you've been feeling that weight of that smoke and that bruise of the reed and you want prayer today because you need the Lord to heal and reignite the, the staff and faculty is up here to pray you can find them individually or you can just find a, a lonely place up here even in a crowded room to pray it's a great day and by the way before we're done I can't wait tonight we get to go see the play tonight if you haven't if you haven't seen it you got to go see it. I'm hearing phenomenal things about the play. So these altars are open. Would you just begin to fill this room with worship? Thank you, Jesus.